Welcome to Pass the Mic. In this episode, Alec and Sabrina discuss queer identities on personal, academic, and practice levels. Their ideas for change, informed by queer knowledge and application, are meaningful and significant. Gender and sexuality are considered to be on a binary or completely off the binary. (laughs) And so you'll have, there's just a lot of wiggle room and like queer theory has progressed so far. So like, I'm, I'm just going to scale back to like a very rudimentary understanding. Um, so cisgender means that like the gender you were assigned at birth. So the doctor held you up and said, oh, it's a, it's a girl or, or it's a boy. Like that tracks with how you think about yourself. And you're like, yeah, I'm a girl. Yeah, I'm a boy. That set of gender expectations fit with the way I, I like to present and the way I think about myself. I'm cool with that. So cisgender means you align with the gender you were assigned at birth. And then most of the other like terminologies you hear, so like transgender, gender like non-conforming, means that either you don't or not completely uh, jive your sense of self with the gender you were assigned at birth. Um, And transgender usually means that you've switched from what you were assigned to what you were not. But there's such a spectrum of the way that that manifests for people that like the language, it struggles to encapsulate, encapsulate what that experience means for every individual person. So these are very broad, broad categories. Sexuality is a huge spectrum. It's just one person can have a definition of pansexual that will be different than the next person that has a definition of pansexual. And same with bisexual and a lot of those kinds of terms couple terms that um, I'm learning more about is asexual and aromantic. It's not that you don't like to have sex. Like you don't, you're not interested in a sexual relationship. Um, There's also sex positive asexual where like you're open to it. So like it's a huge spectrum within each genre of this sexual orientation. (laughs) The best way I can think about it. Um, and then aromantic is you don't want a romantic relationship. You you just want that sexual part of it. And so there's a whole bunch of different kinds of terms within the LGBTQ2S plus realm of what am I? And what are you? And that's no matter what, like I, all of it is valid. Mm-hmm. And all of it is just however yeah. that person feels. That's an important distinction. Like when we, with the LGBTQ plus like quilt bag, those um, um, acronyms include both like gender, sexuality, and romantic orientations. Because like, if you want, you can picture all three on a slider (laughs) or like it's a mixed bag, all three of those. And like, you can just pick a term out of each one and that's who you are. So, um, which like, I, it sounds very complicated, but it, and it can be, but it's also kind of not. So like your, your gender identity is like, again, the gender construct, like male, female, somewhere in between, not at all, where you jive within that kind of mixed bag. Your sexual orientation is like, like what types of people, like which genders kind of thing, like, like, like the sexual attraction all of that kind of stuff. And then the romantic orientations is like, again, like, do you have a romance drive or not? Like, do you want to go on dates? Do you want to hold hands? And if so, with who? 
other men, other women, other like, you know, like, and then there's a word for every single one of those things. <laughs> and so that's why it gets so complicated because the l larger cultural narrative is like cisgender, heterosexual, heteromantic. And that's kind of like the standard default, which is just wildly incorrect. <laughs> and that, and then it assumes that there's like a higher sex drive. That's where like the asexuality thing comes in. And then the like positive or negative aspects and it's how you feel about sex and like having it. And then there's like another term is like demisexuality. And it's like, you know, you, you don't feel really sexually attracted towards people at all until you get to know them. But then you're like, no, nah, like, like, and then you start fantasizing about somebody, but it takes that relationship first before you get to that point. So it's a mixed bag. The other kind of disservice that stops us as like CYC workers from being like effective at having these conversations with youth is um, like the puritanical culture we have going on where like talking about sex is taboo and just because like again it's the harder topic it's way more like it's intimate and we're told talking about sex is not okay and like all this kinds of stuff but like that's a huge thing for like teenagers who are figuring out who they are and having their first experimentations and all this kinds of stuff like that's massive for them so if you're not comfortable having that conversation and you're going to blush the whole way through and you're going to feel awkward like that youth is going to feel awkward and like nobody's going to feel supported or learn anything yeah um so yeah that's a whole other bag of worms we haven't even touched yet <laughs> that's the point i think um one more important thing to point out is that your gender doesn't have to align with your sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. I know plenty of people that are identify as non-binary and plenty of them are heterosexual and plenty of them identify as something else. And so one does not equal the other. Like they're all interconnected in a way that they use very similar language to describe yeah. each other. Mm -hmm. But that's only because we need a system of understanding with which to talk about them, <laughs> right? But True. it doesn't mean that they have to cor correlate all the time, every time. So yeah. Desirability politics is what you were mentioning, Anna, like yeah. you know, the no fats, no femmes, no Asians thing, like that stereotype and like, yep. yeah, all yep. the other kind of the fun things that come about when you introduce like the politics of who you think is hot and why and yeah. yeah. And there's something that comes up for me, I hope you don't mind me mentioning it, Sabrina, from the last one on body image is that, you know, and we're just, again, it's the thing around terminologies and, and the discomfort around terminologies, but when we can just use the term fat and how you say, yeah, it was like my fatness erases my queerness in people's, people's perspective on you. Because like as a non-butch fat woman, like I just I don't fit any stereotype there, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't fit in anybody bo anybody's box of queerness, so I just fall into the straight category. Yep. Yeah. That's how it kind of seems, <laughs> you know? Because you're expected yeah. to be in some kind of box. Yeah, exactly. Because, like, otherwise, who are you and what are you doing here, right? So. <laughs> yeah. And Alicia, yeah. like, I like what you said around, I'm, I'm not here and I'm not here and I'm kind of in this space and we're comfortable in our boxes, but you have no box mm -hmm. for that. And it's almost like floating in this space without without being contained. I like that space. I think that's the kind of spaces we should occupy. I thrive in that space. So yeah. <laughs> I'm okay yeah. there. 
That's right. It's not about creating more boxes. And I think that's the danger too, is that we're just trying to create more boxes that it makes sense to put people into. But how do we become comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty and uh, openness? Yeah. And maybe we just have to focus on like, okay, I'm fit in this box and I fit in this box. Can I expand my box? And that creates a little bit more space. Yeah. And, and like, I like fitting under umbrellas too. Yeah. I like, like as, umbrella a, as a metaphor, be like, oh, I fit under this umbrella. You know, like there's some room under there. It's wiggly wobbly. Like I'm just chilling. I'm vibing. I'm not getting rained on. Like, you know, like it's okay. I'm 31 years old and I'm came out when I was 18 as gay to my parents and to everybody. And I'm now like with the whole gender identity piece over the past couple years, I've been kind of confused about it. And like, it's relatively new compared to my age. <laughs> and like, so like when I was 15, gay wasn't a thing. And now like when I'm like 25, like gender identity wasn't really a thing. So like now it's like, I'm just trying to like figure out how to like navigate this world of like trying to figure out still who I am right now I identify as non-binary to me that means like I don't really feel really feminine but I don't really feel really masculine and like like a male and female so I'm like kind of just in the middle there's a lot of people that identify as non-binary and don't feel either so I feel kind of both but yeah so that middle space, that's a very interesting space because it's a, it's a really ambiguous space. Yes. And I felt, I felt like this for a very long time, but I didn't know how to like go about it because I already had to come out once. It's like coming out all over again. It's like scary. This is who I am and I don't fit here and I don't fit there. Okay. So I fit, I fit where I fit. And that can change. That can change. Yeah. Yeah but it hasn't changed for a very long time. So <laughs> so I identify as like a cis female um, and then I identify as pansexual. Um, and I figured that one out pretty early on. Like I was 15, I think, when I came out to my mom. Um, my coming out was just very like non, it was like a non-event. <laughs> Um, it just kind of was. <laughs> yeah. And then I used the term bisexual first, but then this was like 20, 2010. And like the terminology just kind of grew so rapidly between 2010 and 2015 that like I picked different words <laughs> as it went on. Um, but yeah, I've identified similarly since I was 14. That's That's awesome. You're so lucky that you didn't really have a coming out party. Because I had to come out three times with my mom. Oh, really? Yeah. Just because she didn't get it, or? No, because, like, I've always looked like this, so I don't know how she didn't get it, but <laughs> I come from a very small town of, like, 3,500 people in northern Alberta. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a thing. Like, I was in a Catholic school from grade kindergarten to grade 12. Yeah, and it was, like... Yeah, it wasn't a thing. Like I didn't I didn't even know what gay was until I came to like I moved to Edmonton f- for grade 12 to play hockey 
and I had a gay hockey coach. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this is a thing. This is allowed. This is okay. <laughs> Light bulbs went off. And yeah. You know, when I, when I moved to Edmonton, like I was in grade 12. So it was like my world was like just opened up. Mm-hmm. I'd notice everywhere, like people everywhere. I went to gay pride and like, oh my God, it was like amazing how many people there were at this event that were like, just like me. And I had never had anyone in my life up till when I was 16 that was like me. Like I didn't have any friends like me. I didn't have any support system like me. And I just knew I was different. All the girls in my grade liked boys. And I was like, again, they're awesome friends. Like, you know, they're bros. (laughs) But there was never anyone like me. And that was really difficult. It really goes to show the difference between like, because I grew up just outside of Edmonton. So like a smaller town, but still like close to the city. And so my town wasn't like accepting at the time. Like it was notoriously homophobic and like the kids around me were getting kicked out for being gay or getting get kicked out for being trans. Um, and like, we're getting beat up and stuff like that for these kinds of things. But like, we had our little crew and we were okay with like being out to an extent in that crew. Like we had that little community. It's just, it's so different than what kids in the rural areas go through because they like there was 10 of us but there was 10 of us right like yeah versus in the rural communities you might be one of maybe two (laughs) yeah totally you might be one of maybe two and the other guys in the closet right like yeah (laughs) and hasn't told anybody yet experiences exist on like vastly different spectrums i'm queer looking whereas like my partner is very femme looking and passes as straight. So she has actually a lot of privilege that I will never have. So there's like whole nother like level of privilege of like for queer cisgendered people. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, so I look more masculine. Yeah. So I am more likely to get homophobic slurs. I am more likely to be like if, so she has actually a lot of privilege that I will never have. So there's like whole nother like level of privilege of like for queer uh, females, I guess, queer cisgendered people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I look more masculine. Yeah. So I am more likely to get homophobic slurs. I am more likely to be like in America. If I walk down the street, I'll, I'm more likely to get beat up because of the way I look where she she's straight passing so she gets some of that privilege that I won't get mm-hmm. so there's like a whole mm-hmm. level, another aspect of that that's a very common knowledge in queer circles like if you're straight passing you know it and like you know that that's a privilege and like I'm straight passing like I feel like like I really self-disclose and I got to come out every single time before anybody knows I'm gay, like, you know, or that I'm weird. Like nobody, nobody assumes that about me. It's a blessing, Um, but a curse at the same time. Which it comes with its own set of struggles. Like it does. I go to the gay bar and people think I'm the straight one. (laughs) And like stuff like that. It has its own set of disadvantages, but like, it's still definitely a again I've like made myself a safe person at work and so the kids know I'm queer 
because I'm very open about that with them. And there's like a little pride flag on my thing. And like, we've had actually the most queer identified staff on staff at my place of work, right? And like in this exact moment that we have since I started working there, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very normalized at work, but like, again, when I'm going into placement next semester, next year, whenever we get to go, like, it's going to be that whole process all over again. And like, Anna, you're the only prof I've come out to. Like, I, I just don't look it, you know? Yeah, it's like you have a choice to disclose yeah. or not disclose. Yeah. 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 I, I'm just assuming. Which is... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, though. Like, no, yeah. There's nothing wrong with either way of being. It's just it yeah. what it is. Yeah, and I think that goes even more important to recognize with kids in care when they don't have necessarily mm-hmm. anyone to talk to about it in their family but they also don't really have like anyone they trust in the home like group home necessarily or with other kids in the group home you just never know what you're gonna get especially in residential care and from my experience working in residential care the people that are in those homes whether it be kids or staff have such strong values and beliefs in what they believe in. It could be one extreme or the other. And you try and find a way to live around that. And for a kid that's trying to figure out who they are gender-wise and with sexual orientation, it's hard to navigate. It's like, where do who do I feel safe with? Where do I feel safe? Who Who can I even talk to about this? I had one youth come up and talk to, he talked to me about it and he goes, he says, I think I'm, oh, I th- I'm bi, I didn't, I'm bi. I said, okay, that, cool, like, that's awesome. We kind of talked about it, and he goes, but I want, I don't know if I'm bi because of what happened to me when I was a kid. And then, like, so that's a whole nother level of, like, now he, he's trusting me enough to talk to me about even coming out and identifying himself, but, like, now he's confused about it, too that safe space is there but it's still unsafe because he doesn't even know why he feels yeah. cuz like i had a very similar thought pattern too like am i by because of the experiences i've had or like is this just who i was the whole time and like chicken or the egg you know is how i like drew my conclusion from it that's not everybody else's narrative you know like some people are like no that doesn't have any effect on nothing so it's hard to guide kids through that because like the answer could be anything. They are the only ones who know what that means for them and how they want to contextualize that experience in the broader narrative of their life. But if you're not prepared to have a really nuanced conversation with a kid about that, then like you're going to struggle to support that kid, you know, because it is a really nuanced conversation and you have to be comfortable with, you have to be comfortable with gender and sexuality and sexual assault and trauma and like there's at least six things you have to have a really good grip on (laughs) in order to like be prepared for that conversation and man like not everybody's there all the time right so yeah i am very lucky because in that situation like being gay helped me it is what opened the door for him to be able to come to me and like talk to me about that if i wasn't in that home as a staff Mm -hmm that conversation probably was never ha- would never have been had. So how do we make it so that these conversations can happen with cisgendered heterosexual staff members? 
And I think that's where it comes. That's where the, that sits. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to, it's like telling a gay person that you're gay or bi or on the spectrum of gender identity or sexual orientation is much easier than coming out to someone that's not on in that world. Yeah, absolutely. You just don't know how they'll react. Yeah. Well, and then it's like an implied, like shared experience and shared knowledge. Like if I tell another queer person, oh, I'm blank, like they know what I mean by that. <laughs> like they kind of yeah. have an idea. Whereas if I go up to just kind of someone who I think is cis and straight and I'm like, I'm pansexual. They're like, what does that mean? Well, then I'm an educator. I'm not getting support. Yeah. Then I'm teaching this adult who I'm like, who I need to help me. Like it takes time away from the actual help. Whereas like, if I go out to a queer person and I say, this is what I'm going through. They already have a basis of understanding. Yeah. And I think theirs is always going to be better because like, we actually know we've lived that. We know what it's like to like, be the only queer person in the room and we know what it's like to be scared to tell your parents you know cis straight people will never quite understand that in the way that it takes to live but like we know that we're gonna have to teach and we're gonna have to explain so it's like well I'm not gonna risk putting myself out there just to have them potentially reject me and but then also to have them to teach them what that means and especially kids don't know how like don't know how to ask for support to begin with a lot of the times so then like it's just it's putting a lot on the kids to teach you how to do it instead of you just already knowing. And then there's a whole other aspect in residential care of like documentation. So now this kid's talked to me about coming out. He's talked to me about sexual assault in his past. Now I have to document what part of that, because coming out, that's a safe space between me and him or me and them. Right. I don't feel like documentation on sexual orientation should have, should take any place in those homes, just like it went in any other home. But other people do. Other people are like, oh my God, this is a big deal. I got to write this down. It's got to be documented. And then everyone knows, and this kid's now feeling like ashamed or uncomfortable or... Well, like there are specialized resources that do become important when a team knows, like when a whole team knows, but at the same time, that's a workplace culture thing. Like, are the kids comfortable with saying, okay, you've disclosed these things to me. This is what I have to tell the rest of the staff. Are you okay with that? Like, it's up to your workplace culture for the kid to be comfortable saying, yeah, that's okay. You know? Yeah. And then what if they say no? And then what do you like? How do you no, work I don't want this it? person to know I've heard them talk about gay people in not so good ways, right? Yeah. You could be sitting on a phone talking to your friend and be like, that's so gay. And a kid be like, yeah, not talking to you anymore. Yeah, right? Totally. Like those those are triggering words of like that hurt when you don't know what's going on or when you're trying to figure it out. Yeah. And I think like kids in the home those words are thrown around all the time. It's normalized. I think it's extremely dangerous because of how normalized terms like that are mm-hmm. in schools, in homes, in friend groups. It's it's all over the place. Sports programs. Yep. Same with like the FAG word too. Like that's yeah. that's the one that like bothered me the most yeah. in high school. I'm like, man. 
cut that one out you know like it like like the minute someone uses that word and they're not a queer person themselves reclaiming it I'm like I don't know like that's my like protection little zone but the minute someone drops that word I'm like okay no like you don't understand you don't know what's going on you're unsafe like you think gay people can go like insert every homophobic thing you've ever heard like that's what I think you think based on you using that word so casually you know like yep. and that's me a 24 year old adult the kids think the same thing <laughs> yep yep yeah and and like in that same home with that kid we had another kid that threw around those terms all the time like that mm-hmm. stuff that stuff remembers gay that stuff remembers oh and it was just like dude like you need to be aware of what you're saying because what you're saying can hurt other people right so how do you like yeah how do you make that space as safe as possible for that that one kid in that home so obviously we're getting these kids in care they're coming they're going somewhere to not have the education on how to not even how to help them but the education of what it is of what these terms are what they could mean to somebody the idea of coming in with like when someone says hey i feel like this can you help me figure out what it means you have some kind of an idea of like hey this is sounds like this let's go research it and you have a place to start with that kid mm-hmm. and i i feel like a lot of people don't have a place to start they don't even a lot of people coming out of any educational field it's the same in education. It's, it's like a newfound language mm-hmm. when someone identifies as something different than cisgendered heterosexual. I wrote for one of your reflections, Anna, about the time where, because I work at a drop-in center with kids 12 to 17. And so I get them for like five hours a day, twice a week kind of stuff when I'm on shift and they come and they go as they please. But then we sit, in, we sit around and talk this kid like again he just uses like homophobic words very casually and i used to take that really personally and be like you shouldn't say that because blah 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 blah," and like would immediately try and jump into an educator perspective on like why that's wrong but some kids developmentally aren't there or like or don't care about other people yet you know and they don't care if that hurts their feelings um or you're gay for telling me blah 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 you know so they'll push back like those interventions can work sometimes, but then you need to have the other ones that isn't immediately jumping on that kid. And just like the other one we use a lot is like, Oh, we don't use those words here. And we use them for a lot. Like we use that sentence for a lot of words, like, like the R word and um, any word that you just like is derogatory. That's what we like. We don't use those words here. Like you, you can, I know it's fun to say with your friends and you guys get a laugh out of it, but it's not cool to say that here. And then you make it a part of the culture of your environment. I don't know if I hadn't learned that on the job. I don't know if they're going to teach me that in this program. And so it's not just about, the, <laughs> I don't know yet. I haven't gotten that far. So, <laughs> so it's not just about the theory knowledge, but then it's like the practical application of it too. Like, how do you interrupt these conversations? How do you like offer a new perspective that will like, leans on the relationship you have with those kids you know while you're still building one even you know so yeah and at my, at my yeah. placement we're kind of thrive on this belief of like this is a safe inclusive space for everybody no matter what and it's a, such a culturally diverse and group of people that i i get to work with the staffing they they pick hits every minority group you could think of 
it's just unbelievable. And um, but we were talking about that of like kids using the N word. Most of probably half of our kids at least are black, so mm-hmm. it is somewhat normalized in that in their culture. So how do we go about of being this word isn't okay, not just here, mm-hmm. but out there too. Mm-hmm. And it's the same same with gay and fag and those derogatory terms. How do we make it so that it's not okay here, but it's also not okay there? Yeah. And that's what we're working on it in a in my workspace is making sure that we can teach that to young kids, eight years old to seventeen years old. Mm-hmm. And how do we teach that so that it gets across within their communities? And I think it has to start with our own education. Yeah, like we have to, we have to, we as workers need to know why those words are wrong. Like you need to know why fag isn't okay, and you need to know why the N word and the R word and like all of these other terms aren't okay. Yeah. Um, because then you're never going to use them. Like you can lead by example in a lot of ways in the words that you choose this is so ridiculous or like that's so wild. I can't believe that happened. You know, like things like that make a huge difference because then those, like those kids are like, Oh, like they don't, I've never heard her say any of these other words before, you know? And it's like, no, and you never will. (laughs) Like I know that those words make people feel bad and I know that's not okay. So I don't, you know? I I think this goes back so much to cultural humility Mm -hmm. of accepting what you don't know and mm-hmm. taking time to educate and learn about it. Yeah. Not just tolerate people, but accept people. I will never understand what it's like to be a straight white male, straight. but I have to understand that even though there's privilege involved, they are still people. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean the effects of their other intersections don't play yeah. account into how they feel. You know, like I get into talks with feminism about my youth sometimes. And like one kid, I was, we were talking about white privilege and he's like, I'm not privileged just because I'm white. And I'm like, well, the thing like you in, like in theory you are, but I know that like you're 16 and you feel like you have no power. I know that your family's lower class. And so you're affected by classism. That actually has nothing to do with white power. That's like, or with ethnicity. That's like, that's a whole different power structure. that's got you down but then it's like nitpicking at even the privileged identities when people are already down puts them on the defensive just because they're not in the space of the hierarchy of needs where they can have that top tier level thinking and so then those like discussions become like relationship distracting but like you still like as the workers still need to know like what's what's at play there because otherwise you're going to like just agree with that kid and reinforce that idea that they have that all feminists are bad and all this kinds of stuff right because that's what they're going to walk away with not oh there are other power structures at play what would you like to see in the program that provides students with this ability to understand to have the awareness and the ability to have these kind of nuanced conversations you know with children and youth out in the field that really need these conversations and need the understanding and the support. I think a big one for me is the tokenism. It's it's there. It's so common in placement. Why is it the only queer people get to are offered the Pride Center? 
like what a place to learn if you're straight heterosexual like cisgendered heterosexual person you're learning about a whole new cult like space and people and that's like i know enough about it i think for me to be able to go learn something else somewhere else why is that offered to me or one other person yeah because we're queer it, like I feel like the framework for choosing things at school, like whether it's the coursework or whether it's placement, should be to like it should be expected that you're going somewhere you're going to be uncomfortable because yep. you're going to learn something. So yeah, I shouldn't go to Allview. I shouldn't go to the Pride Center. You know, <laughs> I should go. Like I've never worked with um, like newly immigrated families. I've never worked in like That's residential care. You know, like. Uh, and then I'm white and I grew up in a white town. So like I should be working with people of color and like I should be learning how to do that properly. And so I yeah. think that like the placement, like whoever the supervisors are, they need to know these people don't know a lot. They have some theory, but like they're going to need to learn and they're going to fuck up, <laughs> you know, they're going to make mistakes, but they need to learn because like that's the human population that they're going to be dealing with in life. Like, you know, like it's, very easy to find bubbles that look kind of like the way you look but you're not and you can master helping in those spaces but then you're not learning anything new and you can only help that one type of person because you don't know enough about the other kinds of people out there you know and you're putting yourself as a at a disadvantage when other things intersect and then someone of a new identity emerges into that space and you're like hey what's happening now big time let's take this time and this safe space to educate people that might not have that background. I think the other thing that the, the program could do, there's so many statistics around LGBTQ kids and bullying and homelessness and kids in the system. And it's, it just goes on and on and on. And for how many there are, it's astonishing that it's not talked about in some classes. And it takes, it's, it's up to the students if they want to look into it. I did a year two, you have a groups class. You design like a psychoeducational facilitation of 12 sessions and then you facilitate one of them. My group took it upon ourselves to learn and research. Our project was to have a psychoeducational group for parents of transgender teens none of us knew anything about it yeah and like but it has to be like why is it up to us to to take on a topic mm. like that because that's way out of a lot of people's comfort zones right and not only comfort zones but knowledge zones yes so yeah. what do you suggest let's let's think about you know not saying how you could make it work but ideally what would you like to see I think in a lot of the group projects that it could come up in, mm -hmm. if the if the instructors set like put out seven turn like seven umbrella categories and and made queer identity or sexual orientation one of those categories, someone has to do it then. Mm -hmm. Right? If you have seven groups and seven topics, doesn't matter what they put in there, they can decide on their narrowed version of that, but it's there. And then everybody's learning about it in some way. And it doesn't, it doesn't take the gay people in the class or the queer people in the class to do that topic. That's one of the easiest ways is researching it yourself. You get so much more out of it. Mm. 
having to read their material, having to write about it, having to conceptualize it and think about it, put it into ways that you could actually practice this does far more than just sitting there hearing someone talk about it, living their, that life. Because a cisgendered heterosexual person will never understand my life, even when I talk about it for three hours. So should it be up to students to take the initiative if they chose a topic to kind of fly with that topic and research it? Or does it, should instructors be more oriented and able to teach to it? I think both. I think if, if you're doing a project on it, the instructor has to mm-hmm. be able to back that up. Mm-hmm. For me, that's what I expect out of my profs is if I'm writing about something, they need to know a little bit of what, what I'm writing about. Like we're all lifelong students. So like there's some grace in that, but like, yeah, instructors need to have a basis of understanding because how are they going to be like giving that constructive feedback, giving those good critiques if like you're coming to them as the expert all the time about this one subject, like then that should be the big flag on the play to the instructor. Like, Oh, I don't know anything about this. If I can't give a new insight to the student about this, then I don't know anything, you know? (laughs) We don't all know everything all the time, but (laughs) we got to try a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. A research project on queer identities would be so helpful. I think one of the easiest ways, and we discussed it on my placement, is pronouns. Going into a workplace your first day and saying, hi, my name is, my pronouns are. Because that tells that youth Mm -hmm. that you are a safe person Mm -hmm. right off the bat and i think we if we model that in the in our educational settings of first year every class second year first day of every class third like my name is these are my pronouns and just hammer it in this is why we use them and you get that four Mm -hmm. years from eight different pro or five different profs Mm -hmm. it clicks in yeah so it takes time yep. for it to become part of the kind of the culture of the program. And I know too, like people coming into the program and I, I look back at when I was 18 to 21 years old. And even now you're so influenced by your instructors. If we see them doing it, we want to do it too. Mm-hmm. It normalizes mm-hmm. it in the field. Mm-hmm. So if we're at placement and we have our initial meeting and that prof comes in and says, hi, my name is, my pronouns are, to your supervisor, how normalized did that just become right. in that environment? And, like, there's this implied, like, expertise where, like, in that exact example, like, I as the student, I'm going to be like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. You're not going to question it. You're like, oh, that's what it's supposed to look like to be a CYC worker and to, like, work in this field. You go in there, you say your name, your pronouns, and then you ask what you how you can help. You know, yep. like, that's... you don't think about it that deep (laughs) if you don't know if you don't know nothing like oh that's how it's done right like you just like oh okay that's what I'm supposed to be doing oh I didn't know that that's what I'm going to do next time like you just you assume that you've been doing it wrong (laughs) and you move on right like it 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 introduces things in a casual way so it's not you don't have to sit there and be like this is why we do this like they can ask afterwards and they should ask but like it doesn't have to be a big thing either in order right. to learn how to do that. Yeah. But I know like you didn't have a retreat this year, but if it ever comes back, like that's the first thing that should be happening is 
hey, my name is, my pronouns are, this is what I do at McEwen. This is my, these are the classes I teach or the second year is introducing themselves the same way and just make it like mandatory of like, this is what's expected. Yeah. yeah. And then like writing your pronouns on name tags. Like I've been doing, mm-hmm. like we've been doing that in queer spaces too. Like, or like I did Camp Firefly and we made buttons on the first day that had our pronouns on them and everybody wore their pronoun buttons. And they were extra. If you changed your pronouns over camp, you could change them 30 times a day and someone would just look at your button and know to use the different ones. Like, but it, it goes a long way to normalizing. Like, oh, uh, you can play around with language a little bit. Um, and yeah. you get to say like how you're referred, referred to, right? So. And I, I tell you, if I heard someone say their pronouns, I automatically know that that person's safe. And, and that's what we're trying to do is create safe spaces for kids in care human gender and sexuality in cyc should be its own course human gender and sexuality in cyc then it's like yeah you know 40 percent of homeless youth are lgbtq and like a solid 20 percent of them are two-spirit so you're talking about indigenous identity and queer identity and like there's other ways it's going to intersect in those classes and it's just going to do a bit more thorough of a job but that's like in a perfect world that would be my solution too yeah exactly there's way to integrate those things into the class and like it's a the things that we've like i've experienced so far are a start but i don't think it's going to be adequate in putting out these like youth workers who can have again the nuanced conversation that comes with a little bit of extra time and a little bit of extra effort and like the the deeper learning what is it like to be in class and then the topic of queer identities comes up What's that like for you as a student? It's like, hey, I know a little bit about this. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's a safe zone. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm going to do good this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For me, that's kind of what it is. Yeah. And then what's it like to be in a class where it never comes up? Normalized. For me, anyways. I acknowledge it as a disservice to everyone else. You get to the end and it never comes up and you're just reflecting afterwards. You're like, ah. It's a missed opportunity, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. I'm also not the professor. Maybe there's a reason it wasn't said, you know? Like, it's like the power structure is like, ah, oh, maybe it did, like didn't come up for a reason, right? Like, is the assumption, at least for me. <laughs> but but the, so then it's erasure a little bit. It is know? erasure, like, oh. yeah. Thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah, it was nice to do it. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, you too.